There's no place like Connecticut. That was the message of the 2023 CCM Convention and Annual Meeting, held at Mohegan Sun on November 28th and 29th. And one of the things that makes this great state so special is the work we all do to make sure that no one is left behind. In this episode, we will hear from CCM's Executive Director as he leads a panel discussion on disconnected youth, as well as brief introductions to the United Way and Jim and Moran Food Bank, the Annie C. Courtney Foundation, and our partners in Sustainable CT, all of whom attended the CCM convention. Join us in the Municipal Voice and know there's no place like Connecticut. The Municipal Voice is a Connecticut Commerce and Municipalities podcast in collaboration with WNHH LP 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Matt Ford. As always, be sure to give us a like and let us know what you're thinking in the comments. CCM's Municipal Voice podcast continues to present a key forum on important state-local issues. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the consensus views of CCM or member municipal leaders. All right, we're coming to you from the 2023 CCM convention. We're here with Tom from Annie C at CT Fosters. So for starters, tell us a little bit about uh, what CT Fosters does. Well, CT Fosters is the Department of Children and Families, um, and Annie C Courtney Foundation uh, works in collaboration with it to raise awareness about our children in foster care. We have over 3,100 children in foster care, and probably about 2,200-2,300 families. Um, so obviously there's a, an extreme need for more participation. Um, and so we just go out into the communities and try to raise that awareness and hope to inspire some people to look inside their hearts mm-hmm. to give a little bit more to our children in need. And you said this is a collaboration between nonprofit and the department. How long has this been going on? Um, the foundation's been going on for 10 years, and what our foundation does through our executive director, Deb Kelleher, we lead the first step in getting a license with the Department of Children and Families to become a foster parent. Okay. So is it a, there's a two-hour introductory class that uh, you attend virtually now, okay. post-COVID, um, and um, that's your first step in getting the license to become a foster parent. That's great. And if someone wanted to find out more about that, is there a website they should go to? Sure. So we have www.annec.org. Okay. And um, all the information is there. And you can call us and we'll register you for the class and we go from there. That sounds great. And obviously you're here at the CCM convention. What's important about the relationship with town government? Well, we, we really feel that the municipalities now should take more of an interest in the youth of tomorrow. Um, and our hope is that we can sort of encourage some communities to sort of go the extra step and sort of just helping us spread the word, whether it's, again, through social media, uh, through their websites, just again, just to get the word out there, because this is not something that somebody will sign up for today without thinking about it for a while. So it has to keep on sort of reoccurring in the social media sector. Well, Tom, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for your time. Hey, we're coming to you from the 2023 CCM convention. I'm here with George from the United Way. So George, what are you guys doing here? We're here to um, uh, collect uh, food for uh, the Gemma E. Moran Food Center and for United Way in general. And where's the Gemma E. Moran Center? It's uh, in New London, Connecticut. Excellent, and uh, who do you serve from that location? We serve um, all locations in uh, southeastern Connecticut. That's great, and um, if someone was interested in learning more about it, where should they uh, find some more information? Uh, they can go to our website um, at uh, unitedwayofsoutheasternconnecticut.com and uh, they would find um, more information about it. That's great. And obviously you're here at the CCM convention with yeah. all the town leaders. Uh, do you work with towns? Is that an important relationship to work with town governments? It is extremely important to uh, work with town um, officials and governments so that we know what we need to uh, hand out to our local clients, you know, and all the people that we serve in Southeast Connecticut as well. Great. George, thanks for talking. Talk Thank you so me. much. I appreciate your time. Yeah. We're coming to you live from the 2023 CCM convention. That's right. We're here with Sustainable CT. Hey guys, how's it going? It's going great. So what's new at Sustainable CT? Well, this year we have our first gold certified town. Excellent. City of New Haven, doing it all. And what, what goes into becoming a gold certified town? 
Gold certified means we have to go deeper on equity, deeper on climate change, and deeper on collaboration with other towns. And New Haven did it all, and they well exceeded the point threshold for gold certification. Yeah. And you're here at the convention. What's going to be happening at the convention? Well, we're so excited to be here. Thank you, CCM, for the long partnership in helping create this program. And we'll be up on stage at the luncheon. I was just talking to Joe trying to squeeze us in before the governor arrives. And we're going to be, today, tell us what we're going to do on stage. Sure. Well, today we're going to honor the towns that are certified for the very first time in 2023. So we're going to bring those towns up on stage, talk a little bit about some of their achievements, and we'll also be highlighting the city of New Haven. They're recertifying, but they're recertifying at Gold, and this is our very first year of offering Gold, so we're excited to bring them up and let the crowd go wild for them. Great. Even the first year it's available, New Haven guys are that's great. Yeah, right and you said you got some new towns coming. How many new towns are getting certified today? Uh, seven. There are seven new towns. That's great. And how many existing towns are there? Oh my gosh. Are we at 68? Yeah. Eight? We're 68 total. 68, 68 towns. And yep. this year there were 16, I think. Yep. 17. 17. We ran out of fingers yep. to count them. There's so much good work happening across the state. Yep. Well, terrific. Thanks, guys, thanks for talking with us today. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. We're coming to you from the 2023 CCM convention. I'm here with Rick Porth. Rick, uh, introduce yourself. What do you do at CCM? Well, I work as special projects coordinator uh, at CCM. I've been doing that for about three years now. And what special project are you here coordinating today? Today it's about civility. CCM has been working for a while now uh, to promote more civility. Uh, among our leaders in the municipal government, most of whom, all of whom really uh, are totally committed to that, but looking for ways to, to, to do their work in a way that allows for civility in the public communities and so forth. And why did we feel that it was important at this time to do this civility? I think it's a response to what's been going on for a few years now across the whole country on some tough issues, including at the local government level, uh, that, that has promoted some incivility in, in public spaces, public meetings and elsewhere. And I think CCM has been working hard to promote the idea among our municipal leaders of going into their jobs, going into their public meetings with the goal of allowing for civil discourse and respect for different points of view. That's great. And so we've been having people at the convention today come and sign up, sign the pledge. And, yeah. and, we, and, and Matt, we did the same thing last year. We've been at this for a while. And so we already have, I think it's like 150 people who have signed municipal leaders who have signed our civility pledge, and we're picking up some more today. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. We've, we're, today, people who sign the civility pledge will get a one-year free membership to Brave Rangers, who you've inter interviewed on the show recently. Podcast, uh, which, is, as you know, is a national organization working to promote civil discourse among people from all parts of the political spectrum. That's great, Rick. Thanks for talking. Yeah, thanks. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. This year, CCM launched a public awareness campaign that calls attention to the crisis affecting young people in Connecticut who are off track or disconnected from education or employment. We organized regional roundtables to promote awareness of this challenge and to help develop solutions in response to the report, Connecticut's Unspoken Crisis, Getting Young People Back on Track. This series culminated with the fireside chat discussion held at our convention and led by CCM's executive director, Joe DeLong. Forward. So what I want to do first is just introduce, uh, I'm going to jump around in my introductions, we're going to go ladies first, um, but with Jeannie Milstein with us today. Jeannie uh, was Connecticut's child advocate for 12 years. 
Um, so that's that's quite a, a term of service, helping children across the state. And she is currently the director of human services for the city of New London, not too far from here. And unofficially, her title in New London is known as 1-800-CALL-GENIE uh, because she pretty much handles every single uh, sidebar issue that comes that way. She has a works for a great mayor and, and uh, Mike Passero, but uh, Mike will tell you that his right hand, left hand, and any other hand or arm that he could ever grow is, is Jeannie in New London. So we're, we're blessed to have you. And right here to my immediate right um, is Mayor Luke Bronin, um, two-term mayor of Hartford, correct? Uh, getting ready to finish up his second term. Luke also, uh, many of you may know, is a Rhodes Scholar. I don't know how many Rhodes Scholars we've had as mayors in this state, um, but he's, if not the only one, he's certainly one of the very few. Uh, Luke was uh, counsel to former Governor Dan Malloy, and uh, probably Luke's most important and prestigious title that he's ever held is he was also for two terms the president of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities. So that, uh, that should probably be at the top of the letter. You know? And then, you know, in the middle, we have Joshua Brown. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this conversation with Joshua a little different because, well, Jeannie and Luke and many others that we've met with around the state are subject matter experts um, in this field, and Josh is as well. He's also probably the only panelist that we've had that, that 119,000 disconnected youth that that report talks about, he lived it. That, that was Josh. That was, his, that was his life. That was his reality. So instead of jumping right in to the report, instead of jumping right into the solutions or the work that's being done, um, what I want to jump into, Josh, if it's okay with you, is the authenticity. Mm -hmm. So you can talk to our folks and tell them about these kids, who we're really talking about, because mm -hmm. you were that right. kid. So right. if you take a little time just to share your story. And I actually um, um, actually say now, um, I tell the kids, I'm you, you know, you're me, especially the ones that, um, as we start disconnected, disengaged. Um, brief little history about myself, and I'll try to keep it short. Um, uh, 13 years of my life, and I, I try, and I say that slightly because ever since I was kind of born, I was like moving around, so it was really no stable uh, homes. But 13 years out of my life, I was homeless, you know. Um, so that was local shelters, um, cars, um, people that you call family because we really didn't have too much family. So, um, single mother raising two, uh, three kids on her own. Um, I have two other siblings, um, lost my father very young. Um, I was eight, three years before my birthday, um, on July 4th. Um, and my mother and my father, um, had a 30 year age gap. So, you know, yeah. And I, I, I speak, I'm, I speak about these things because a lot of this stuff does, you know, go on and um, there's a lot of disconnected and disengaged youth that people don't get to because you don't know about these things, you know. Um, I'm an outreach worker right now and, I'm, and I know we're going to get all into the gist of, because you, you heard the, the, the bad things, um, but I'm an outreach worker for Domus. Um, and one of the reasons why I am an outreach worker for Domus is because how long Domus has been involved with me. Um, being one of those youth, as I explained, being homeless, um, I didn't tell you how I was kicked out of pretty much every school at a time that I landed at Domus at a, a charter school that they had started um, um, when I was going to middle school. I was just getting out of um, um, elementary school and they had created this charter school uh, called Trailblazers uh, to go to. Um, and in about, maybe about, and Mike can probably, he can um, attest to what I'm saying as well, maybe about a month in um, is when he found out that we, we're homeless, you know, um, and why? Um, it wasn't because, you know, we came and just told them or somebody came and told them right out, you know, um, well, why are you missing, you know, a week of school and it just started? And, you know, when John and Josh would leave, you know, we would want to walk home um, because we didn't want nobody to know where we were going. You know, as uh, when we grew up and, you know, I just throw this out there as well, DCF was considered to us destroying children and families. So my mom put in our head, like, you stay away from DCF. You can't tell the cops. You can't tell the school. You know, you can't tell people out that, you know, because they might say something to somebody. And you really can't trust anyone. 
So, you know, as long as we had each other and whether we're homeless, whether we're poor, whether we're not eating, you know, I can tell you no cash assistance. Why? Because then that gave the state access to where we would be at, you know, um, no housing, you know, no Section 8 voucher, no nothing. So um, these are the things that youths are going going through nowadays as well. And it's like it's getting worse. You know, the, as you see from the surveys, the numbers are growing. You know, I can also tell you I spent a little time in juvenile detention. You know, all these things while growing up. And um, I always had an avenue to go to. You know, a man sitting in here today, he's the reason why I got my license after I cursed him out like pretty much every week. Um, you know, uh, and just trying to help me with my obstacles and myself being angry, you know, not navigating through these things, you know. and. When I work with youth today, I hear a lot of people saying, like, well, why are they stealing these cars? And why are some of them doing this? It's, it's so many things that are going on that people just don't know because nobody's getting to them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we were just talking about this as well. And I don't want to you know, talk too much because um, I'm going to tell you some, some good things that happened, you know, after all that. Um, but a recent survey you see just from New Haven alone, three, 400 youth in a year. It jumped from like, excuse me, 300, from like 288 to like 567, 570 in a year. So these are kids that are couch surfing. They're, they're at some relative's house or some friend that's not gonna tell that they're over there because maybe they don't wanna lose their housing or what they have at the time. Um, maybe they might be sleeping in the car that they own. Um, some are at shelters, as we know. There's programs for the 18 to 25, um, but there, there's really no program for those that are younger unless you're in a family, you know? So if you can't go to a family shelter, where are the youth that are going that are homeless, you know? So um, that's why I'm big on, and we talked about this, having these nonprofits in, a, in pretty much every municipality because I wouldn't have been able to tell anybody anything that was going on if Mike didn't follow me home, you know, and he had to get to the nitty gritty. He was like, okay, so do you want to, do you want to make this worse? And then I have to contact the cops because it is my job. And I'm like, Ugh. so me and John kind of had to tell him, and, you know, 25 years later, now he's my boss. After some certain things that I did to get myself on um, self-sufficiency, they were always there, you know, furnishing my first home, uh, first apartment, um, it's, it's, uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to get too, you know, emotional, but uh, uh, I thank them, you know, a lot. You know, I uh, let me give you just a little bit. I became uh, a vice president in a in a in a local bank, you know, in my in my city with 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 help from people like Domus. So um, that's just a small gist of it, and I'll go into that because. You know, I was homeless, but I'm a homeowner, you know, and it's a lot of other things that I get into, too. But I don't want to talk too much because I know this is the panel and everybody got to speak. But um, I talk about this, but I also I left my briefcase upstairs. I walk around with my transcript because my transcript will tell you it attests to my story. You know, my first two years, two and a half years in high school, all Fs, you know, over 400 absences in high school, you know, um, where did I graduate from? An alternative school. Who was my family advocate? Tom. <laughs> Who's my supervisor now? Tom. So, you know, um, and that's after coming back and working in a retail bank and want to give back to those that were just like myself, uh, constantly getting, uh, uh, I don't want to say harassed about, hey, well, you know, how it was as well, so why don't you hire some of these kids in the bank, which mm -hmm. I did. Um, so. Um, it's a lot of things that I can I can go on and on about, but um, that's just a gist of it, a little bit of it. Well, Josh, I, I think you know, that's why I wanted you to tell your story first, because I think not only is it authentic about who this population is, but it's also a message of hope for yeah. what can be done with this population when you see what you've done with your life, mm -hmm. you know, coming from what these kids are dealing with. One of the things that, that I personally have found striking was that as we've done these regional conversations all across the state, and we've had these experts who have sat on these panels, all of which come at it from a different angle, but are all people who work in this. One of the questions that every single moderator has asked at the beginning of, when you saw this report commissioned by Dalio Education that talks about now 
119,000 disconnected youth. Mm -hmm. Did you find it shocking? Were you surprised? And, and let me just, because I want to throw this question to all of you, but mm -hmm. what was interesting to me was almost every one of them to a T said, no, I wasn't surprised. And, you know, they shocking, sad, you know, crisis, whatever, but not surprised because we see it. What I found shocking about it was Dalio had done a similar report not that long ago, like in 2015, 2016, that had that number more around 40,000. So it's increased by three times, you know, since then. Our, our graduation rates for the first time in modern, you know, history that we can find are declining. You know, our, our rate of homeless population in the state for a decade declined. The last two years, it has increased one year by 16%. Mm. And so to me, that was hard for me to hear all these experts working in this field saying, yeah, I'm not surprised by this. How could we not be shocked by this? I mean, when you see that massive, you know, all the numbers that were going in the right direction are now going in the wrong direction, and we have that much of an increase. Um, for me, I think I was the only person that, you know, was part of those meetings that I sat there and said, nobody else is shocked. So I want to ask you guys generally in reading that report, throw it out to all three of you. Um, did, did you find any of this data, not just to be troubling, but to be shocking or surprising? Or what was your general reaction uh, when hearing these things? Jeannie, you want to start and maybe we'll just work our sure, way down? I'm happy to. First of all, Josh, thank you so much you. For, for sharing your story. You're an inspiration. That was Appreciate that. Very, very courageous. And if I could just make, I'll answer your question, but one observation. You know, as you were telling your story, it made me really think that every child needs a consistent, caring adult. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be the key to your success, Mike, Tom, names that you mentioned. And, and I use the word consistent because, you know, your story was about adults who were inconsistent in your life for mm -hmm. so long and inconsistent housing and so on. So to be able to have that kind of compassion and also people who really believe in you. Uh -huh. And I, I really am going to answer your question, but one quick story reminded me of when I was the child advocate. You know, I, I was visiting uh, a young man in a correctional facility. And, you know, most of the time, and, you know, I was guilty of this. We would say to kids, so, so what's the matter? You know, what's going on? Or what's wrong? What's, you know? And, and I noticed that this little boy had a picture of a little baby on his little cubicle wall. And I thought, oh, who's that adorable little baby? And he smiled and he said, that's my son. You know, lady, no one's ever asked me about that. And I thought, wow, you know what? We have to change our narrative because we contribute to this 119,000. And I thought, instead of saying, what, what's the matter with you? We shift to what matters to you? And then you focus on the positive and not, you know, okay. Because I know you're going to talk about that later. Like, what matters to you? Every, something matters to everybody, you know? So having that sort of frame, and I, that didn't answer your question, but I, I was not shocked by the data. And, you know, the numbers are going up. We're seeing more and more families who are homeless. We are seeing, we look at the price of housing, the price of heat, mm -hmm. the price of food, the price of gas. Um, you know, Wages aren't keeping up with it. And you see a lot of single mothers, you know, mm -hmm. working two jobs. It's the challenges are are increasing. And so I wasn't shocked by it. The COVID, I mean, yes, COVID had an impact, but this was happening before COVID. And now we're seeing the mayor and I were talking about this earlier. There's a cliff now with COVID benefits and mm -hmm. you know, and sadly I think it's gonna get worse or mm -hmm. it gets better. And, um, I, I mean, uh, something that uh, I'll piggyback something that she was saying that uh, you got to have some type of support or somebody that, well, like we say at Domus, you know, love lives here. You know, y you have to know that someone loves you, that you can even go to them to get support. Um, and they, again, we're big on that. Uh, the report, uh, when it, I think, and, and, and I don't know if I, if I can even share this, when I was out, um, they were doing, they had to find people 
to get surveyed. You know, like, where are these kids and, um, you know, are they here in Stanford or, you know, where are they staying? And, you know, they came and they tapped and they said, you know, can you find them? And I'm like, absolutely. I'll show you where they're at. You know, I'll bring, I'll bring you over to the shelter. You know, there's kids in my program stay in the shelter. There's, there's some kids that might even be staying in cars now, you know, 18 years old, they can't go or don't want to go into a shelter because of ego or because some things that they've seen in the past and they felt like they never really got help before. Um, another thing that, and I forgot to mention this as well. And it is what it is. I had a single mother, but she also had issues. You know, she had a lot to, a lot of mental illness that she was dealing with, a lot of depression. Um, you know, that's why she, she drank every day, you know, every day. And that was something that she said she coped with. But um, it's, it, it, these are, this is going on in these households, you know. So um, I, I, I said this. And I don't want to, you know, we talked about this, Mike and all of us. Uh, I think this was around the time uh, when we was doing the reimagining justice um, in, in Connecticut that, um, and that was 2000, I think, 16 when we were talking about it. Um, but I think it was Governor Bloy came up to Harvard. It's It was going to get worse, you know, um, because that's when I even started seeing it. You know, I, I got out of uh, retail banking my, my last stint. Um, I was working at Santander. And, I was like, Mike, what can I do? He's like, well, you know, if you want to get a job in the uh, working in the group homes, and you know, uh, I said I want to volunteer. He's like, I got to pay you. So, you know, and I was even seeing it then. You know, what about the guys that couldn't get to the group homes? You know, there was no place for them. And then, as we started seeing, the therapeutic group homes were being shut down. So, a lot of guys were, a lot of guys and young women were just getting kicked to the curb. So, you know, or they had nowhere to go. Um, yeah, I, I I wasn't too shocked that it was 119,000, and and I hate to say it, you know, without more services, and I and I'm and and I know a lot. Of, there's like a lot of competing for like nonprofit money and stuff like that, but um, I believe if there's more services in in the municipalities, like what what we're basically doing, we can. Bring those numbers down. The proof is in the pudding, you know. Every kid that you even save from going to jail, um, that's $280,000 that the state is saving a year per youth, you know. That young man, a young woman, 18 years old, 19, they get into a uh, uh, an adult correctional setting, 80000 a year, 90000 So, you know, what if we can take 30000 of that and reallocate that to them? to get them services that they need, you know. But I don't want to get into the numbers thing because I did that for about 10 years in retail banking. So, you know, we could. <laughs> but, no, I, I, I didn't really answer it off the back either, so don't feel bad. <laughs> no, I wasn't shocked, Jones. I wasn't too yeah. shocked. I don't know whether I was shocked by the number or not, but I, but I think um, the report is pretty powerful in demonstrating that this is a, a challenge that we have to confront. And I think there were a few things about the report that that may have been surprising or not, but are certainly important to emphasize. I mean, one is that this is not a problem in any particular community or in any particular type of community. It's a problem across the state. And, you know, you see extreme levels of disengagement, disconnection in, you know, rural eastern Connecticut towns, just as you do in the city that I serve. And many, many other communities, every community. That's, that's one of the things that I think is really important to stress about the report because I think we, as we deal with this issue, it's too easy for, for many people in many communities to think that's somebody, some other community's problem or somebody else's issue. But but this report is pretty clear that this this is everywhere. everywhere. And it may not be visible or easily visible everywhere, but it's everywhere. And so that, that was one thing that I thought was really important and powerful about the report. The other thing is what Josh was just talking about. I actually think the numbers piece mm -hmm. is really important to talk about. I, I think we all wish, uh, I wish that the moral case was sufficient to drive us to action, mm -hmm. that hearing a story like Josh's was sufficient to cause us to say we need to, uh, to, to tackle this at a whole different level of investment and a whole different level of commitment and, uh, and determination to, 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 to change it. But it's not sufficient. What does, what has to come alongside that, unfortunately, is a demonstration of why it makes sense economically. And mm -hmm. does it make sense? Right. Because the cost to the state in lost 
community and lost wages as well as those direct expenditures that Josh talked about is really, really high. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that's something else that I was really grateful for this report highlighting because in order to uh, to support the young people who we should be supporting no matter what, we've got to make the case as to why it's the right use of resources. And I think it's a pretty compelling case. You know, right. we, and I think that, you know, what Josh's story demonstrates, but what probably a, a, a number of folks, I mean, I see different people who, are, who I know different programs that you're involved in, but one of the things we know is that you actually can successfully help young people mm -hmm. re-engage yeah. get back on track and find something that matters to them and go after it. You know, we built our youth service core to do that. I mean, I'd love to talk more about that. I won't do it on, on this answer, but um, our youth service core is a piece of it. The, the work that ROCA, which works with young mothers in Hartford, uh, does, that's another piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, but the other piece is that uh, I think we have to recognize that a, a part of the reason we're failing at this, I think, is that we're not coordinating enough in our response. You know, one of the ways, yeah, we've seen, we've lost some progress when it comes to homelessness and we're seeing the need rise. But one of the reasons that we actually made some really significant strides in combating homelessness in Connecticut is that we use the approach of the coordinated access network where it was on a regional basis, all of the providers that were working in that space came together with one you know, organization at the center that coordinated, and they worked together to say when there's a family or an individual experiencing homelessness, let's figure out what organization is best poised to serve that family. Let's figure out where the housing availability is, where the resources are, where the, you know, the wrap is that we can use. And, and, and it was like an all-hands-on-deck effort, but in a coordinated way. Mm -hmm. This may be at a different scale, because we're talking about 119,000, but I actually think if we're going to address this, we have to take that same kind yeah. of approach. Yeah. You have to coordinate amongst all of the extraordinary yeah. and sometimes very effective organizations that are doing this and say, how do we make sure that we are not letting young people slip through the cracks when there are so many good people doing this work? And then we got to resource it at a different level. Yes, I, I, and I, I, I agree with you as well. I mean, and, I, and I'm just, I'll second that. The Kansas I, he, he broke down what the CAN system is. Um, heavily involved with that down in Fairfield County. Why? Because as the mayor is saying, it works. You know, and I, I feel if we did have, um, you know, this type of structure for these disengaged and disconnected uh, youth, disenfranchised. I mean, wherever, whatever, however you want to call it, it's, it's across the board. It's all in Connecticut. And if we had that centralized. Uh, and I don't, I don't really, you know, I'm not the uh, operations person to, or the structural person to put it together. But um, if we did have that, I think we, we would bring those numbers down. And like you said, they're proof, the story. I will tell you. Now, I told you all those bad things. If this is the time to tell you now, I was able to not only just buy a home, I was able to pay a home off. Why? You know, I know 30 years, I didn't want to be in no mortgage anyway. So I had to make sure within seven years that I was able to pay this house off, you know, Going, working hard, making sure that, you know, I, I, I had two jobs at a time. I wanted to make sure that principal was paid off, you know, because I never wanted somebody to come and knock on, and nobody will ever, and I'm saying this, and people say never say never. Yeah, let me tell you, nobody will ever be able to knock on my door and tell me that I have to go. And I say this, if I can't pay $5,000 in taxes a year, then maybe I shouldn't. I'll get a disability check or something, something happens. I'll never be kicked out of my home. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really big on that because for so many years and I'm whew, half of my oh, half of my life homeless you know so the other half though you know um, again with the right services ambition um, support you can become something you know um, I was actually a, an assistant vice president as well at a, at a bank um, I, uh, I was recently a uh, uh, a, an honor award a couple years ago um, for community service. So all these things um, is proof, you know. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. So Jeannie, the mayor touched on it, Josh touched on it. Your prior work as the child advocate in that experience can can you articulate in some way where the where you see the gaps, you know where the gaps are in the collaboration and the coordination? What for the, your experiences? Where did those gaps exist? And, and and you know not that expecting you to solve this whole problem, 
but your thoughts on how we tackle those gaps? Well, I think, you know, I think the mayor, you know, articulated that. The, the lack of coordination, the lack of communication, um, the lack of collaboration sometimes can be a huge barrier, both at a local and at a statewide level. And sometimes well-intentioned systems that are supposed to provide safety and care for kids sometimes further fail. So how we address those systemic issues too. You know, sometimes you have to shine a light on, on the actions that you're taking. Um, and so, so there are a lot of gaps. But, but the mayor made me think of something based on the Coordinated Access Network. And this might be something we can all do in our local communities. We took that model and we expanded. We have an integrated health team in New London. So it's, we, what we do is we, we meet with first responders, the nonprofit community and hospitals. We meet once a month and, and we discuss people in our community who have been transported to the hospital on a very regular basis, usually for mental health or substance use issues. Although lately, for us, a lot of elderly with Alzheimer's and falling. And, and we get together once a month, we roll up our sleeves, like the coordinated access network, say, okay, who can do what for this person? Because what you find is this person, this nonprofit was doing this, this nonprofit was doing this, and then if there were kids involved, another nonprofit mm -hmm. was doing this, and this but this funding came from here, and the funding for the car. And we said, but this is, doesn't make any sense. So let's all put our money on the table, like we talked about earlier, but on a, but on a very local level. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to call this person at 3 o'clock every day, because that's when they're lonely. And and we, we reduced our transports by 75% just in wow. a couple months. So it's making me think now, why don't we do this with some of our kids? And the way, I think, to engage them, because we do this with our opioid work, is to have people with lived experience. Um, yeah, if I go talk to a kid who's disengaged, be like, seriously, are you kidding me? Um, but if we get Josh, a Josh, to say, hey, you know? Um, and then sort of, as a group, figure out what we can do together. I, I'm just sort of thinking out loud. I'm pitching on this panel, too. It's like I could never be, you know, the panelists that were going to be here. but. It's, it's kind of making, it's an idea. No, that makes now. a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it, like even now, um, if a youth came and, and, and say, we meet once a week, we will say, okay, if we know a young man, is, uh, we'll get a report as well. We have a reentry program. So we'll get a report who's going to come out of uh, incarceration six months ahead of time. You know, um, a, uh, uh, we called them mentors at first, but uh, a caseworker is sent up, you know, and, and mainly right now it's Cheshire, you know, because a lot of the uh, young men are there, uh, 18, and um, uh, the 18 to 25 population that comes out of, like, the true unit sometimes. Um, and, and if that young man is about to come out, you know, that advocate is up there with them the first six months, you know, before they come out. So why? Because when they do come out of jail, they, they already know they're going to have this advocate that's going to talk to them already working on housing. You know, where are you going to be working when you come out in six months? You know, um, they're working on those things already, you know, meeting with them once a week while they're going to prison. So um, another example, you know, that I get you, uh, can give you, you know, if I, I, this young man does come to me and maybe he, not, he might not be homeless or uh, he might not be eating, uh, he might be able to eat every day, but um, he, does, he wants to find a way to get money. You know, and I don't want you to go sit out on the block. So guess what? I'm going to refer you over there to work and learn so you can get a stipend every week, you know? So we have that a work and learn program as well. That'll give you, you know, a stipend every week to come in either what you're working with your hands or you want to go cook some food or, you know, doing resume building. We, it's, it's, a, it's a wealth of things, but it's that centralized system. Somebody, all these units working together. So. <laughs> I'll let you go, Mayor, so I'll keep talking. No, no you should keep talking. No. Uh, I, I, think, I think there are, there are a number of things, but I think there, there are two very concrete things that I think we, we need to do in order to enable us to work in better coordination. And, and one is to allow school systems to share more information, and two is allow DCF to share more information. Okay. Uh, there is a huge lack of understanding about what information can be shared about young people. And there's, there are mm -hmm. good, good protection, there are protections for good reasons, mm -hmm. but I think we need to take a really hard look at what the laws are currently uh, that restrict data sharing. And then we need to make sure that there's a playbook that everybody understands what you can and what you can't share because I cannot tell you the number of times when you know, we encounter a young person who needs help and we can't quite figure out what's, what's going on 
them in school, whether they're under DCF supervision. What, mm -hmm. and, and you have all these players, as Gene said, who are working in many cases with a young person, and nobody's talking to each other, but worse than that, nobody thinks they can talk to each other. And right. I think that has to be solved. And I would put that forward as something that CCM maybe should consider adding to a legislative uh, agenda because um, it, it is a very real obstacle to progress uh, in, in some of this work. Um, and uh, and then the other thing, which not as not as concrete, but I just the conversation makes me, makes me think of it. You know, I think there are there are two places where the most disconnected young people often first it, it, their disconnection first becomes clear. One is in school, mm -hmm. and one is DCF, um, and it's often mm -hmm. apparent quite early. Partly because of these restrictions on sharing information, um, we don't do enough to intervene early enough. And one of the things that I feel a really sort of profound sense of personal failure about is that, you know, we've, we've worked really hard to try to create new avenues for young people, uh, particularly those aged 16 to 24, to get reconnected. But in the meantime, every year there are more kids who are entering that age bracket who are disconnected. And what that means is that we've failed them along the way. The kids who are 16 now were eight when I took office. Mm -hmm. and, and if they're still disconnected now, we really, really failed them. And that probably wasn't because there weren't, you know, two dozen indications along the way that, that should have let us know just how much this young person was off, out of, off, off track. And, and I do think this, the barriers and perceived barriers to information sharing are a part of the problem. Can I talk about that for one second? Of course. Because, you know, there's always a lot of reports on the school to prison pipeline. Many years ago, when I was a child advocate, we did um, a report called From Trauma to Tragedy. Yeah. And it was about the DCF to prison pipeline. I think mm. getting at your point, where we track this, the stories of two young girls who ended up in prison. And they were identified really early on mm. as you know, really needing a lot of support and help, as was their mother. But what the system did was hold the mother accountable, you know, and then the kids are fine, right? Because um, the mother's now, and, and, and it's so wrong. So I think that early identification, you know, that's why programs, some solution for prevention, home visiting, having somebody right there, like you said, mm -hmm. when somebody's there in the prison helping, they know that person right. beforehand. Six months you know. Before. Prenatals to some of the vulnerable families. I don't know if that sort of addresses kind of what you're talking about. So I want to I want to get to questions from the audience, um, but I don't want everybody to leave here with their heads hanging. You know, <laughs> uh, we have fortunately, from my perspective, um, three people who are very good at delivering messages of hope. Um, Josh's life story is a message of hope. Uh, Jeannie is an advocate in the community. That's what you do is you bring hope. And I will tell you, my experience with the mayor Bronin, well, he is a very uh, pragmatic, I think, individual. He is also a very optimistic person. Mm -hmm. and I've, I will say that about there are people who can drain the energy out of a room. <laughs> and you are a very optimistic person. And what I find is, you know, um, pessimism uh, or skepticism often leads to anger. Anger is not very beneficial, um, but but optimism and hope lead to productivity. And so what I want to ask each of you um, is to kind of give us uh, your your message of hope in this. What do you see that's 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 working that can make it? I mean, you're like I said, your life story is a message of hope. But I want it because I know that you're all people who are optimistic, who do drive positive change, who bring positivity in our communities. Let's let's talk about that for just a moment. Whoever wants to go first. Go ahead, Mayor. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I think there are lots of reasons for it, but um, but not without work, right? I mean, uh, it, it can't be a passive optimism or hope. I, I think. Josh's story, as you said, is a, is, is a reason, but but there are initiatives that 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 are effective mm -hmm. that make a difference, and and I think to Jeannie's point, you've got to reinforce success, mm -hmm. and you've got to you've got to you've got to cut bait on failure, and you've got to reinforce success, and mm -hmm. then you have to constantly try to get better. I mean, I I guess one of the things that I um, the youth service score is really close to my heart, um, and one of my goals. Um, in this period of transition, you know, out of office for me has been to try to make sure that 
uh, it remains in a strong enough position going forward, or at least that the next administration has the ability to, to keep it going if they can. And so, you know, we, we have set a, set a really significant goal to sustain it the next year and, yeah. and hopefully the following year after that with, and that there's a big you know, fundraising push right now. And I guess what, what I'm hopeful and optimistic about is that the response has been good. You know, we, we've, we've gone back to, to funders, we've gone to companies, we've gone to foundations and said, here's a program, here are the results. You know, in this small city of 121,000 people, there are now 2,000 young people who have been part of the Hartford Youth Service Corps. And, you know, here's the percentage that have gone back to school. Here's the percentage that have gone on to school, uh, gone, gone, on, gone on to work. Um, and, uh, and so the response has been, has been good. I think that when you can lay out the case, um, a compelling case, you know, that people, people want to step up and help. And hopefully we can ha have that same conversation at the state level and, and, and in the state, state budget process. So that's that's one reason, um, but uh, but the, the biggest reason is just the young people that that I see, whether it's from a youth service corps or from local or or a number of other you know uh, efforts that that happen in my city, um, where you you really can see uh, young people who were disconnected reconnect. And I, I don't even know. That feels like such a I don't like that. I don't know if I like that word, but I, I but. Um, but maybe maybe this is I'm going on too long now. But maybe this is sort of one way that I, that I'm optimistic. And I, I, you tell me, Josh, whether this sort of is true from from your experience. But I also think that very often when we talk about a young person who's gone through the kind of thing that you went through, mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people whose reaction is that's eh, probably too late, huh. and it's never too late. No. No. Right, there are lots of young people <laughs> yeah. who who um, get that, that after 13 years yeah. of living what you went through. You, you know, you you were able to get on the path that you that, that took you to where you are today. And I see so many other young people who've done that too. And I do think that we have a tendency, as horrible as it is, as a society, to, to sort of write people off. Yeah. And and so what gives me hope is that there's so many examples of the fact that um, you you should never write people off. No. And uh, and that gives me a lot of a lot of hope and optimism. But also, you know, it's got to be a challenge to us to to do this better. Josh. Uh, well, first thing I wanted to say, too, is uh, something that y you brought up, Mr. Mayor, that was uh, key, um, that Mike stresses with us at Domus. When people say, like, a kid is not re we don't have time to wait if they're ready or not. We just get to them, you know. Um, when we're talking about hope, you know, uh, and I, I, you know, I always uh, shy upon like saying this and people be like, oh, you don't have to be so timid and your story should get out there a little more. But um, I am hope, you know, um, when we're talking about these programs and, and, and what I where I talk about where I work and and what I do and why I do it. Um, I am hope. Actually, my, my, my program is called Project New Hope. Um, so it, it, it is an outreach program. And I don't talk too much just about my program. I talk about Domus as a whole because it's all these different entities that's of Domus that that works, you know. Uh, we have to wrap these services around these young men and these young women for them to have some hope. You know, um, I do feel um, if we had, and try to not say this, you know, like the mayor's youth services is dear to him. You know, Domus is there to me, and everybody knows why. I do feel if we did have more Domuses and more municipalities, these things would change. You know, um, I am a living example. You know, I can, and like I told, I told you the bad, but I can also tell you the good. You know, I can tell you the good on things now. Um, and I, I live a, 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 I don't want everybody to walk out here, you know, pity, because I tell people all the time, don't pity my story. Look at me, you know. Um, and I, I, and that's why I thank God for, I think, I thank God for Domus, you know, I, I do. And, and, um, other supports, and, but they were a big part of me getting to where I'm at now. And, you know, uh, and, you know, one last thing I would like to say too, what also feels good too, um, like we're working with Domus now. Um, and I've, oh my God, I said working with Domus now, as you guys know, I said almost 10 years now I've been doing, cause I started Anyway, um, when I don't have to argue with people that really know what's going on, you know, and, and let me just let me let me break it down so where you can understand it. Um, when they know you, and they know how where I can get to. Imagine sitting across from people and people telling you that a young person, uh, a young man or a young woman just won't make it like the mayor is saying. 
it feels good to me that I can sit across from somebody and can, we can, I can say to him, well, you know, I'll use myself. Josh just went to jail or Josh went back to jail, but you know what? He's out now. We can still go find him a job. You know, we can still, well, you know what? If Josh doesn't want to go work in retail or whatever, he, let's find him something doing something with his hands. You know, let's make sure that he doesn't go back. And guess what? If he goes back or he goes and does this, we're going to still be right there with him. You know, we, we say this thing about 18 to 26, and sometimes we get kicked in the, in the, in the behind because, you know, <laughs> for tra tracking and data purposes, you know, we don't want to go over the age of 26. But, you know, sometimes they might be 28, you know. And I have to help you outside of the program, but we're going to get to you. Yeah. So, you know, there's hope. It can happen. And there's a, there's a lot of me's. Mm -hmm. That can come and sit in front of you too. Yeah. You know, there's there's hope, it, it, and it can happen, and uh, it, it just can. I, I'm a big believer of it. So, Jamie. Well, it's, you know, I mean, Josh's story is hope, and countless other numbers of of young adults who are so resilient, and 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 so that gives me tremendous hope. And same again to your point. Let's focus on or my earlier point too. On, what matters to you? What's important to you? How can we engage you? Maybe it's the arts. Maybe then, then you know, we, we know from our opioid work that relapse is part of recovery. So, yeah, okay, you might fall down a little bit, but there's somebody there to help build you back right. up, focusing on your strengths. And, you know, sometimes, too, you know, with, with our ARPA money, the first ARPA money, the first question in my human services bucket was, whose idea was this? Because a lot of times it's not people like us sitting in around mm -hmm. in a room yep. or getting paid for their great <laughs> ideas. But if you actually talk to people, whose idea was this? Oh, it's the people that we serve. Mm. You know, you can learn so much. And what also gives me hope is how many people there are, like all of us in this room, who work so hard every single day, no matter what kind of job we have, but just to, you know, to make sure that every young person, every family is able to live up to his or her potential possibility and promise. Hmm. So knowing that we're all out there, just trying to do that also gives me hope. Thank you all for doing this. Thank you all for doing this. The Municipal Voice is a co-production by CCM and WNHH 103.5 FM. Christopher Gilson is our producer, Harry Draws is on the boards, and I'm Matt Ford, your host. Be sure to check out our Facebook page and give us a like, and watch out for our CCM chat series on our YouTube page.